In November of 1778, during the American Revolution, a Native American raid in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania near present-day Wilkes-Barre led to the capture of a young girl named Frances Slocum. Frances grew up with the Native Americans. She was traded from the Delaware to a childless couple of the Miami tribe and was given the name Maconaqua, Young Bear. And she migrated west with her adoptive parents to uh, what is now northern Indiana and eventually was married to a man who became a Miami chief. And after his deafness somewhat interfered with his being chief, he stepped down from uh, that position of being chief, and he and his wife, Maconaqua, ran a trading post in north-central Indiana. And after his death, she continued to run the trading post. And a couple of years after her husband's death, along about 1835 or so, a trader named George Ewing visited that trading post. And noting Maconaqua's physical appearance, he asked her about her background. And she revealed that as a child, she had been abducted near the Susquehanna River, that her father's name was Slocum, and that he was a Quaker and wore a wide-brimmed hat. And this George Ewing then wrote a letter to the postmaster of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in which he recounted his meeting with Maconaqua and what she had said. And this letter was later published in a newspaper, and it was asked if anyone had a relative who had been abducted back during the Revolutionary War. And this was some 60 years later by now. And as it happened, Francis's brother, Isaac Slocum, became aware of this news, and he wondered if Maconaqua might, in fact, be his long-lost sister. And so he journeyed west and went to Indiana to see her in 1838. And though she appeared, by appearance, to be very Native American, Isaac knew of one way to verify her identity. As a very young child before her abduction, Francis's brother, Ebenezer, had bashed her finger with a hammer. And sure enough, Isaac looked at Maconaqua and he saw a scar on her forefinger and he asked what had happened. And she said, my brother struck it with a hammer a long time ago. And thus, the siblings were reunited. Years later, a long way from home, and eventually some of her other siblings also made the journey to Indiana to visit her. It was a family reunion decades after their separation. And this morning we see something similar taking place in Genesis 45. Siblings being reunited after being separated from one another for, for decades and also having a secret between them which can verify that they were indeed siblings. And so let's look to our text which is Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. And you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up. From Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, as we uh, consider Genesis chapter 45, we will do so under, under three main points this morning. Number one, God is sovereign. You are responsible. God is sovereign. You are responsible. 
Number two, trust God so that you can forgive. Trust God so that you can forgive. And then number three, do not quarrel. Do not quarrel. So God is sovereign. You are responsible. Trust God so that you can forgive. And do not quarrel. And so we, we left off last week at the end of Genesis 44, and we saw there how Joseph had finally sprung the trap, so to speak, on his brothers and tested in various ways their conduct toward Benjamin. And we saw there Judah's stirring appeal, telling how he had become the surety for Benjamin before their father and how he had offered Joseph to become Joseph's slave in the place of Benjamin. And this stirring appeal turned out to be more than Joseph could take. Now, in the narrative of Genesis up to this point, we've seen more than once before Joseph going out to weep, right? He, he sees his brothers, he hears them talking, and sometimes his emotions become stirred, and he, he leaves the room, exits stage left, so to speak, and weeps. But this time, Joseph was overcome and did not turn away. He had tested his brothers multiple times, and every time they had proven themselves to be changed men, the time had come for them to finally be reunited as brothers. And so instead of going out to a private place to weep by himself, this time Joseph sends everyone else out of the room, everyone except his brothers. And so this time of reunion was one for them to enjoy in privacy. And so the text tells us that there was no one else with him when he made himself known to his brothers. And so here he is, the Lord of the land of Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh, and he tells them what they least expected to hear. He says, I am Joseph. No interpreter between them now. He's speaking to them face to face in their language. I am Joseph. The fact that he told them his name and that He's now speaking in their language himself. No interpreter should have been enough to verify his identity. And it seemed that indeed that was enough. They got it. They, they saw it. Look there at the end of verse 3. We see there that his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. What could these men possibly say? They couldn't find the words. The Lord of the land who had already dealt harshly with them, who had already put ten of them in prison for three days and kept one in prison for considerably longer, they now learn that this man is their long-lost brother, the one whom they had mistreated, the one whom they had intended to kill, the one whom they had sold into slavery, the one concerning whose guilt they had covered themselves up and covered their tracks before their father for more than 20 years. Now this man of power proclaims to them convincingly that he is their brother. And just in case they needed more proof, he says to them in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Who else but Joseph himself would have known the name of their brother, would have been able to speak to them in their own language, and would have known that they had sold their brother into Egypt. This surely was a man who knew too much. This was a man who knew their darkest secret. Surely it must be Joseph, and indeed it was he. And now as we consider Joseph's words here, we need to observe God's sovereignty and providence in human affairs, that ultimately it is God who accomplishes his will in the world, 
And at the same time, humans are responsible. Even though the Lord is doing his work, men and women are still responsible and accountable for what they do. Now notice in Joseph's words to his brothers, this overall theme of the fact that he was sent to Egypt and that he attained this position ultimately because of God. And so you see it in verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve life. You see it in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. You see it in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And you see it again in the words that he puts into the mouth of his brothers to take back to their father in verse 9. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Joseph is very clear, very repetitive here. This was God's doing. God was the one who had sent Joseph to Egypt. God was the one who had made him a father to Pharaoh, lord of his household, ruler over all Israel. This was God's doing. But yet, if we think about Joseph's experience as he had lived through those events, he had seen on a human level how those events had transpired. In that sense, there was, there was uh, very little that was magical about it, right? Joseph knew that his brothers had thrown him into a pit. He knew that his brothers had sold him to the Ishmaelites who had transported him from Canaan down to Egypt. He knew, physically speaking, humanly speaking, how he got to Egypt. He, he understood the chain of cause and effect. He understood these events. Humanly speaking, he knew how he became a father to Pharaoh and lord of Pharaoh's household and ruler over the land of Egypt. He himself had heard the words come out of Pharaoh's mouth where Pharaoh said to him, you shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. See, I have made you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph had heard Pharaoh himself invest him with that power and authority. But yet, in the ultimate sense, it wasn't Pharaoh that exalted Joseph to that position of power, nor was it the brothers who sent him down to Egypt. It was God. It was God who had sent him there. It was God who had exalted him to that position of power. And God did this for a specific purpose, which we see there in verse 5, to preserve life, or as it said in verse 7, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. In short, God was the one who was planning and the one who was executing these events, bringing them to pass, and he was not doing these things at random. He was doing so as to bring about his purposes in the world. In this case, he had brought Joseph to Egypt and had exalted him to this position of authority for the purpose of preserving life, for the purpose of bringing about this great deliverance, specifically for the purpose of preserving his own father's family, the families of his brothers. Now, why was that important? Well, that was important, of course, because of God's promises. God's promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It was important because of God's promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that all families of the earth would be blessed through them. There's no blessing coming to all the nations through the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are wiped out from the face of the earth in a season 
a famine. In those promises, the salvation of the human race is tied up with the survival of the family of Jacob. And that's why Joseph was sent to Egypt, to preserve the family and many other lives as well during this time of famine. And we should also note that Joseph's coming to Egypt and the subsequent coming of the rest of the family was also the way in which the word of the Lord to Abraham, back from Genesis 15, was fulfilled. When Abraham uh, divided up those, those animals and the Lord passed through by means of that, that smoking torch and fire pot in Genesis 15, the Lord had said to Abram on that occasion, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so Joseph's transition to Egypt, followed by that of the entire family, then set the stage for the nation to become enslaved, and then further down the road set the stage for the Lord to bring up the Israelites out of Egypt with many possessions, plundering the Egyptians, and set the stage for the Israelites to be the means by which God's justice would be executed on the nations of Canaan because of their sin. And so it was God who was working all of these things after the counsel of his will. He was the one who was bringing the famine. He was the one who had raised up the deliverer, and we see God's sovereignty over all things here. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism expresses God's providence in this way. Question 11. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And so we read in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 to 39, who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? God is holy and good and sovereign. And when we think about the things that we encounter in our life, as unpleasant and as distasteful as they may be to us, that word there in Lamentations 3.39 is spot on when it says, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Right, we were talking about that for those who were in Sunday school in, in the life of David this morning. Considering David's sins, he has no ground at all for complaining given the things that were coming upon him. And so God governs all things so as to bring about his holy and wise plans and purposes. And this providence extends even to the smallest of things, the smallest and seemingly most insignificant things. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, not even a sparrow falls apart from the will of God. And likewise, the providence of God includes his sovereignty over evil. And we saw that in the, the passage in Acts chapter 4 that, that Jim read for us this morning, where the apostles are very clear in the prayer that they offer after, uh, after they had been released. And they said, Truly, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The apostles understood that the actions of Herod, Pilate, peoples of Israel, the Gentiles, and all that they did in engineering the crucifixion of Jesus was a sinful thing. But yet, they understood also that this, that in doing this, they were doing whatever God's hand and purpose had predestined to occur. So God makes use of evil, but he himself is not the author or approver of evil. And so James reminds us, James 1.13, that God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. And so when Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were doing what they wanted to do, God was not tempting them. They were doing what was in their own evil and wicked hearts. And they were rebelling against God. And likewise, John tells us in 1 John 2.16 that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These sinful things that stir us up, they don't come from God. They come from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. As difficult as the doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence over all things is for us to, to grasp or to Except we need to understand here that our first responsibility is not to understand mechanistically how this all works, but rather we have to believe it and accept it upon the authority of God's word. But again, God is sovereign. You are responsible. None of this alleviates man of his responsibility. And so I think we have to understand Joseph's words in verse 8 as a manner of speaking when he says to them, it was not you who sent me here, we have to understand this in a qualified manner. In one sense, they did send him there. Obviously, what Joseph means here is that in the ultimate sense, it was God, that it was God's overriding and overarching plan by which he came to Egypt. Because Joseph's words elsewhere here uh, in chapter 45 make it clear that he understands the instrumentality of his brothers by which he was sent to Egypt. And so I think this is especially clear in verses 4 and 5 where he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. They did actually sell him into Egypt. As we said, in one sense, that's, that's how he got there. In one sense, they certainly could be grieved and angry potentially with themselves because what they did was very wicked to their brother. But Joseph tells them not to be grieved or angry about this because of what God had accomplished through their misdeeds. Now, this is not to say that there should not be appropriate and godly sorrow for sin. There should be appropriate and godly sorrow for sin. But it is to say, I think, as uh, commentator Matthew Poole expressed it, that they should not excessively torment themselves with the remembrance of the fact Neither break forth into contentions and wrath and upbraiding one another. For God, by his wise, powerful, and gracious providence, overruled their evil intentions to a happy end. The point is, is that though they did evil in what they did to Joseph, Joseph is not trying to beat up on his brothers here when he says, you sold me here. Joseph says, don't be angry. He's trying to direct them to God's larger purpose in what was going on as seen in the present result. And 
This brings us then to our second point, which is trust God so that you can forgive. And I think, I think we see that going on here with Joseph. Based on Joseph's words to his brothers and his attitude toward them that we see here and in these final chapters of the book of Genesis, I think we see how a trust in God and an understanding of his providence in the affairs of life life are quite helpful to us in avoiding bitterness and resentment, vengeance, harboring unforgiveness when hard things happen to us in life, specifically hard things done to us by the sinful actions of others. And so I want to just contrast the behavior of Joseph here with a, with a couple of other examples. Um, one, of the, one of the classic works of the, uh, the French writer Alexandre Dumas was a novel called The Count of Monte Cristo. And the basic gist of the story, to give a thumbnail sketch, is that an up-and-coming young man gets ruined by some people that he knows. These people are jealous of him, and they uh, conspire against him, get him charged with treason. He's getting, he is uh, found guilty of treason. He's thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he meets a priest who, who educates him and tells him about a hidden fortune on the island of Monte Cristo. And this young man eventually escapes from prison, uh, goes to the island of Monte Cristo, gets the wealth for himself, and then he goes about seeking revenge on these people who had brought about his downfall. Now, Alexander Dumas's work is certainly not a work of history, but it seems that Alexander Dumas was at least in part drawing inspiration for his story from a book that was called Memoirs from the Archives of the Paris Police, which contained a somewhat similar story about uh, a man named Pierre Picot. Now, Scholars sometimes debate whether the events in the memoirs from the archives of the Paris police are actually true or not, but the story was at least told as true. And as it was told, reportedly this Pierre Picot was likewise the victim of a conspiracy, sent to prison, then released, gained a fortune, and came back seeking revenge on those who had ruined him. He murdered those men who had ruined him. In some cases, he tried to engineer circumstances to ruin their families, their descendants as well. You get the point. Both in the Count of Monte Cristo and in this story about this Pierre Picot, you have up-and-coming young men who are ruined, and when they come back, they come back literally with a vengeance. Now, I want you to contrast in your mind the actions of the fictional Count of Monte Cristo and the actions of this reportedly real Pierre Picot on the one hand, with the actions of Joseph, on the other hand. There's some similarities there, but great differences as well. As young men, these men had their lives ruined. They all had the rug pulled out from under their feet, so to speak. And all of these young men had a comeback. They gained wealth or power, maybe both, and they behaved quite differently, didn't they? Pio came back stabbing, poisoning, ruining the children of the men who had conspired against him. But Joseph, with more power, second in command of Egypt, says to those who ruined him, do not be angry or grieved with yourselves. Given the two responses, it is quite easy to see that one is the way of the wicked and one is the way of the godly. Joseph is willing and able 
to be reconciled to those who hurt him so deeply because he understands that these things have happened to him in light of God's providence and he can see God's purposes in them. Joseph was nowhere close to bitterness or resentment on account of the past here. Nowhere close even to bitterness and resentment, let alone revenge, because he trusted in God. Now, for you and me, I'll venture to say, providential dealings of God with us are not going to be quite on this scale, right? Joseph is exalted to this high political office at a time of crisis in order to save the progenitors of the Messiah. Now, that's, that's quite different from anything that you or I will ever do. But nevertheless, we ought to be able to look back on the hard providences that come to us in life, things that have been on the earthly level perpetrated against us by sinful people. We ought to be able to look back on those things, not with thoughts of revenge upon the human agents, not with thoughts of resentment or bitterness, even towards God, but rather with trust in him that he ultimately means these things and is engineering these things for our good. We can submit to his chastisement when it comes and we can trust that his judgment will be just upon those who have done wrong to us. And therefore Paul can say in Romans twelve nineteen, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen. And certainly we know from Scripture more broadly that as Christians we must forgive the wrongs that are done to us if we ourselves would be forgiven by God for our sins. And so our Lord Jesus says in Matthew six fourteen to 15, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And so the example of Joseph here in Genesis 45 show us how important a trust in God and in his control over the events in our lives, how important this is in order for us to move beyond bitterness and unresentment to the point where we can say to those who hurt us, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. And we can say that and at the same time not be angry or grieved with them ourselves on account of what they have done to us. And the only way for us to get there is to, is to come to Christ, to trust in him, to understand that all that Christ suffered on the cross was not on account of anything that he had done, it was on our account. We need to come to Christ in repentance and faith and trust in him to receive forgiveness and also to be given this disposition by which we can forgive others. For this kind of forgiving disposition does not flow naturally to those who are apart from Christ. And so those who have been forgiven much also forgive much. If you have more questions about what it means to trust in Christ, to repent of your sins, and to receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of your sins, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know. We would love to tell you more about how you too can be reconciled to God and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Now, in, in what follows here, we see how Joseph instructs his brothers to go back to Egypt, uh, to go back to Jacob in order to bring him down to Egypt. There's five more years of famine to come. The family could bring their flocks and live in Goshen 
Otherwise, poverty might come their way. We see the pictures of this joyous reunion in verses 14 and 15, how Joseph kisses his brothers and talks with them. And then in verses 16 through 20, we, uh, we see the word of uh, how Joseph's brother's appearance had come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives instructions how the brothers are supposed to go back, bring their father, their households, and come to Egypt. And we see this departing scene where Joseph provides for his brothers these changes of garments and how he shows Benjamin this special favoritism, giving him five changes of garments, and not only that, but 300 pieces of silver as well. And they, he sends provisions for, for Jacob uh, so that he can have sustenance on the journey to Egypt. And this brings us then to our third point, which is do not quarrel. I would direct your attention especially there to verse 24, where Joseph gives this interesting parting word to his brothers as they go back to Canaan. He says, do not quarrel on the journey. Now there they were. They were brothers, members of the same family, all on their way back to their father. And Joseph forbids them from quarreling or being agitated at one another while they were on the journey. Now, it's possible that Joseph wanted to forestall any potential arguments that might arise about who is the most to blame on account of Joseph and who is to blame for what. Well, Reuben could say, well, if you guys had listened to me, none of this would have ever happened. And, you know, different ones would, might point the finger and a big brouhaha might arise. Joseph wanted nothing of this and wanted nothing of any kind of quarreling or agitation to accompany them on their journey. And I think there's some analogy here to be made uh, for us as Christians. As Christian believers, we are all members of one family, all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are here on a pilgrimage in this world going to God the Father. And we, like these brothers, are liable to fall into quarreling and contention and strife. And... We're warned about this in the New Testament. And so just hear a few of these. Uh, Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. 1 Corinthians 3, 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And Galatians 5.20, when Paul is listing out the, the deeds of the flesh, he does not hesitate to list enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions as being among the deeds of the flesh. Sounds like quarreling is something we are warned against. Now here's the thing. As in all ages, we live in challenging times. One of the challenges that we face is knowing how to be firm in the Christian faith and firm in Christian practice and avoiding two things. One, avoiding capitulating to the spirit of the age on the one hand, and number two, avoiding being unduly rancorous toward other believers who cannot see quite eye to eye with us on all things. Those are, those are the two ditches that we have to stay out of. And so on the one hand, obviously, we have to avoid capitulating to the spirit of the age with all of its worldliness, decadence, sexual immorality of various kinds, etc. We have to avoid caving in on the truths of scripture, who God is 
what the truth of the gospel is, that there is one living God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who became man and was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived sinlessly and went to the cross and died for our salvation, and that the way of salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that true faith will always be accompanied by genuine repentance from sin. We could, we could go on. These are non-negotiables for us as Christians. We must hold firmly to them. And not only that, as Jude says in Jude verse 3, we must contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all handed down to the saints. We must never countenance any heresies or errors which avert the truth of the gospel, which is to say they turn the truth of the gospel inside out. We must never countenance wickedness upon the account of which the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So let's let's be upfront and very clear about that errors averting the foundation of the gospel are not welcome here. Not in this church, not in our lives as individuals. That wickedness is not welcome here, neither corporately nor individually. There are times when hard questions need to be asked, when difficult conversations need to be had. There are times when Christians must imitate Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, when we are told that they had great dissension and debate with those who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and were proclaiming, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was good and right for Paul and Barnabas to dissent from and have great debate with those men because they were clearly teaching falsely, something that is clearly antithetical to the gospel, something that averts the foundation of Christianity altogether. So we've got to be clear up front about these things. But with that said, we need to make careful distinctions between things that differ and be careful, as Joseph warned the brothers here, that we do not quarrel on the journey. Again, we read those words uh, together this morning from 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And again, those requirements of pastors are uh, equally applicable to all Christians, those about being kind to all, being patient when wronged, All Christians need to do that. None of us are allowed to be quarrelsome. All of us must be kind. And part of being kind means being patient. Even being patient when other people are wrong or when other people have wronged you. Last year in an article uh, written for the online publication First Things, Carl Truman uh, once recounted that perhaps the saddest thing that he had heard in the 16 years that he was teaching at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania was an excellent interview that uh, they were conducting with a student. And the student said that he had come to seminary to learn to share the love of Jesus more effectively with his friends and had learned merely how to fall out more sharply with other Christians who didn't quite measure up. He came to learn how to share the love of Jesus, and what he learned instead was how to fall out sharply with other Christians who didn't measure up. Now, how sad is that? I'm all for good, solid theology. I'm all for thoughtful, careful, biblical church practice. But brothers and sisters, we have to learn not to quarrel on the journey. 
we must rather heed what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 when he said, live in peace with one another. And James tells us that the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, James 3.17. And so may God grant to us all tender hearts that are filled with love, that are desirous of peace, so that we not quarrel with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as we journey on toward God, the Father, and the eternal promised land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your commands and examples and reminders to us. Lord, we pray that you give us tender hearts, hearts that long for peace, hearts that do not desire a quarrel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to always contend for the faith, but let us never be quarrelsome. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have wisdom, to know the difference and the distinctions and what different situations and circumstances call for. Lord, we pray that you would give us great trust in you and in your providence and sovereignty so that we can forgive, be merciful to others, and not be, be bitter towards them. We thank you for the wonderful example that we see of Joseph in that regard. Lord, we ask your blessing now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We thank you for this reminder of Christ and what he has done for us. We give praise, we give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.